The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll be in Luke chapter 22 in just a few moments. I was thinking this week as I prepared for my message that throughout our lives, we make a lot of promises. Like, it's something that we do all the time, and we do it from the time that we're children. We begin as kids to learn that it's not just enough to tell our parents that something is true, but we have to promise that it's true. I know that even this past week, I think I uttered the phrase, I'll let you stay up late if you promise to be good tomorrow. Right? That's a promise that they will always make and never keep. If you let your kids stay up late, they will be bad. But we promise. We make promises all the time. And as we grow into adults, the idea of making and receiving promises, it continues. And the promises become more and more significant. If you went to your mortgage company and you said, I promise I'll pay you back, I pinky swear, (laughs) they'd be like, No. (laughs) Like, wait, I don't have my fingers crossed. It wouldn't matter, right? Because those things we do when we're kids, but as we get older, we need real formal agreements in place. And probably the most important promise that we make, we call it a covenant. Because a covenant is this most important promise that one can make to another person. The covenant of marriage. We don't just make promises of marriage. We, We enter into a covenant with our spouse. Now, the irony about our love for making promises is that along with it, human beings also have an affinity for breaking them. Uh, This past week, uh, I was in a a car talking with somebody that I care about, and we had a conversation, and they were telling me about how they have, like, trust issues, and something happened, and and they didn't trust this person, and and they were struggling a little bit with that. And I, I thought I would give, like, some advice, and so I started the conversation with, well, do you trust me? You know, and I assumed that the answer would be, what should it be? It's me, right? <laughs> but they didn't say yes. They said, I don't know yet. I thought, really? I was, I was crushed, actually. <laughs> it was actually insightful, I think, on that person's behalf. Because although I want you to trust me, right? I do. I, I mean, I, I don't know... I think we're all like that. We want to be able to say something and have people believe what we're saying is true, to trust us. If we were to look at at our track record, if I was to look at my track record of all the promises of of the past that I've made and how many of them I've kept, then a person would be wise to say, I don't know for sure. I don't know if you're a person that I can trust because your track record isn't always great, right? Now, we break promises all the time. Sometimes it's just because we forget we made them. Sometimes it's because we don't have the ability to keep the thing that we promised kept. We, we are weak. Our circumstances change. We, we just can't do what we said we would. Sometimes we break promises out of anger. We feel like that person doesn't deserve for me to do what I said I would do. There's so many reasons that we have as human beings for breaking our promises. But the fact is, we like to make promises... And we're not always great at keeping them. This morning, 
we are going to talk about a promise that God made to us. And it's different. I think that our desire to make promises and our desire to be trusted, we come by it honestly because we're made in the image of God. But when God makes promises to us, it is vastly different from when I make promises to others. This morning, as we prepare ourselves to participate in the Lord's table, I want to focus our attention on on a phrase that Jesus uses at the Passover meal when he instituted the first communion service. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he pours out the wine, he gives it to his disciples, and he says this, Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, it's very possible that when I read that phrase, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. This cup is the New Testament. The word testament It just means covenant, right? It's this new, very important, formal promise that I've made. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And the the idea of what it means to be in my blood is also an interesting one. What does he mean when he says that this is a covenant in my blood? I think what he's saying there is that this is a covenant that is established by my blood. This this. Blood that I will pour out will make this covenant true, will bring it to fruition. And so this is a covenant that's established by my blood, my blood which is shed for you. And so I hope that now looking at that phrase, you can say, okay, what Jesus is saying is he's giving out this cup and he's saying this cup symbolizes this promise of this new covenant that I will bring about by shedding my blood for you. But now the question is, what new covenant? What's this new promise that he's referring to? Because for us, in the 21st century, we might say, I have no idea what you're talking about. But for the disciples, as they heard this, they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to a promise that that, that Jeremiah made back in Jeremiah chapter 31. Actually, God made the promise through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Jeremiah 31. This morning, I want to look at two covenants. We have the new covenant that Jesus just referred to, and then we have the old covenant that this new covenant will fulfill. Jeremiah was a prophet, and he preached to Judah during, before, and after they were defeated by the Babylonians and taken into bondage in about 587 BC. So most of Jeremiah's book is a warning against Israel to stop sinning and repent and turn back to God. And they never listened to a word Jeremiah said. Can you imagine being a preacher and nobody ever listening to a word you say? This is Jeremiah's situation. Here's the story. God all along has been making this promise to Israel, this covenant with Israel. And we're going to find all the way along Israel has constantly done one thing. I mean, what are they always good at doing? Breaking the covenant, right? They're like, they never keep it. They do awful. Jeremiah is now warning them, turn back to God, repent. He will show you mercy. But they don't listen to a word he's saying. But in the midst of this, and I imagine that as he says these words, that families are being driven from their homes, 
that sons and daughters are being taken and sold into slavery, that the whole city of Jerusalem is being destroyed, the temple diminished to rubble, Israelites being killed, and no longer being free. This is a chaotic, awful situation. And into this awful situation, this is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In the midst of all of this chaos and all of this destruction that surrounds them, in the midst of their bondage, this verse gave the Israelites and their descendants hope. This glimmer of hope. That the day will come when God will make a new covenant. That this is not the end. That God is not finished. That a new covenant is on the horizon. This is glorious news. When you're in the middle of a situation that is absolutely hopeless and helpless to have the God of the universe speak into your life and say, there is still hope, it's a big deal. And that's exactly what this new covenant is. It's hope. Verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. God says, I'm making a new covenant, and before I tell you what it is, I want to tell you what it's not. It's not the same covenant that I made when I delivered you from Egypt. It's not the same covenant that I made with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24. See, that covenant was different. That covenant required obedience. I gave you my law. I showed you how to live. And I made a promise to you that if you would obey the commands and the statutes, that you would be blessed. But if you disobeyed, you would be cursed. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's simple, isn't it? Ten rules, ten commands. Well, there's others, I know. But summarize in these ten commandments. You keep these things, and I will lift you up. I will bless you. You will be this nation above all nations that will shine light on the fact that I am the God of the universe. Will draw all nations to you. What a wonderful promise to be given. But Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 1, it it echoes this idea of obedience. And this is another kind of retelling of the law. It says, if it comes to pass that you will hearken diligently into the voice of the Lord your God to observe and to do all his commands which I command you this day, that the Lord God will set you high above all nations of the earth. So so reiterating the blessing for obedience. The next 14 verses describe in great detail the blessing that Israel would receive if they would just obey what God told them to do. But then verse 15 says, If it shall come to pass that you will not hearken, you will not listen unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe, to do all of his commands and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then he takes like 40-something verses to list a bunch of curses. I'll give you a couple of them. 
Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be smitten, to be beaten before your enemies. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Verse 33, the fruit of your land and all of your labors shall a nation which you don't know eat up. All the work that you do will be enjoyed by another nation. All of your sons and daughters will be taken to them. You will be scattered. Verse 64, the Lord, the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And among these nations you will find no ease, no rest. Neither shall the sole of your foot have rest, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and a failing of the eyes and a sorrow of the mind. Listen, the, the first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of works, it wasn't a bad deal for Israel in the sense that God revealed, this is who I am, this is what I want you to do, and if you do it, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. The problem was, in Exodus 19, verse 8, this is what they say. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what they said. That's the promise they made. And what they did for the next 860 years is broke that promise over and over and over again. Israel had failed constantly. And God, in his mercy, had often saved them. They would fail, and the curse would come upon them, and they'd go into bondage, and then they would cry out to God for deliverance and help, and God would save them through a judge or through a king or through, through some miraculous way. But nothing ever really changed. Israel could not keep their side of the covenant. And so now, Israel faces the greatest bondage that they went in. 587 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the walls are broken down, and all the people are taken by an evil king and scattered throughout the earth and and brought into slavery. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah says, there will be a new covenant, even though you broke the old covenant. And I was a husband to you. God God wants us all to know that God was always faithful. He always kept his promise, but they didn't. So there's a a new covenant coming. It's not like that old covenant. It's not the covenant of works. Verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What does he promise? What is this new covenant? Well, the new covenant is, first of all, that I will write a law on their hearts. That the law that they once could not keep that was on stone tablets, that they always broke, would now be written on their hearts. This can't be comprehended. This is a mystery until we understand Pentecost. The Spirit of God coming into our hearts. He says then that I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is God's promise. That even though they'd failed so many times, somehow God would make a way for them to be his people again. For him to be their God. Spurgeon preached an entire 
message on this phrase. I will be their God, they shall be my people. It's, it's the idea of this most wonderful, amazing creature in the whole universe stooping down and taking the most wretched, uh, most disgusting, the most vile creature and saying, you are mine and I am yours. That's a crazy thought. And this is what God says about the people who are constantly breaking his commands, constantly rebelling against him. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Not only that, they shall know me. This speaks of relationship. This speaks of an intimacy that we'll have with God. Somehow, we won't just know about God. We won't just be going around talking about, oh yeah, I've heard this about God, and I think this is true about God. But we'll have an inward relationship with God. We'll know him. How is this, or who is this going to happen to? Who does he make this promise to? Well, all that's said here is it's from the least unto the greatest. So all people. There's nobody that's disqualified from that. How will it happen? How is it possible? I will forgive their sin, and I will remember it no more. And perhaps this is the greatest news of all. See, the covenant of works was one where God promised to bless if they did this, and God promised to curse if they did this. There was something that Israel had to do in order to merit God's blessing. And they could never do it. They always fell short. But do you notice something missing in this covenant? There's nothing for people to do. I mean, there's no place where God says, you do this and this and this, and then I will bless you. Do all these things. So how is it possible? Now, this is the mystery. And you have to understand that, that God's character is such that he can never break his own word. Right? That, that when God makes a promise, when he enters into a covenant, even if somebody else breaks and does everything wrong, breaks the covenant, then he's still bound to that covenant because that's his word. Okay? God never breaks his word. So how is it possible that back with Moses, he made a promise that if they will obey, they will be blessed, and if they disobey, they will be cursed, and now he's all of a sudden just going to throw that out. How can he do that? So this is wonderful news, that God is all of a sudden going to accept people apart from their works, but it also seems to require God to be, I don't know, a little bit flippant with his first promise. He's not really concerned about the fact that he had promised to curse them for their disobedience. And so how is all of this going to happen? And this is the, this is the incredible mystery. This really is the mystery of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. How is God going to take an unrighteous people and make them his? How is he just going to forgive their sin if he's supposed to be this just judge? How how does any of this take place and God still be the good, perfect God that he is? So let's go back to Luke chapter 22. Here we're back at the Last Supper, the Passover celebration. The Jews are celebrating God saving them, delivering them from Egypt and giving them the law on Mount Sinai. And the custom was to drink the cup four times throughout the meal. This cup that Jesus took, took place after the meal. It was the third cup, and it was the cup of redemption. And so Luke 22, verse 20, once again, Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood 
which is shed for you. This cup of redemption that you view as a symbol of God redeeming you from Egypt will now point toward a much greater redemption. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant would be established. Through the blood of Christ, all of the promises of the new covenant would come to fruition. And so the the big question of how is this possible is answered when Jesus says that this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. How is it possible that God will wipe away the old covenant, not worry about the new covenant? Well, the truth is he doesn't. The new covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it still stands. What happens is Jesus fulfills it perfectly. He obeys perfectly. He keeps the new covenant in our place. And then he dies and he becomes the curse that we should have been. The curse that we deserved. I know that when we talk about covenants and we're in church, you're like, let's just, you know, bypass that and talk about God's love. And, and that's, honestly, that is what we're doing. We're just telling you how it works, right? How this works is that God made a covenant, Israel broke the covenant, and then God sent his son to take the punishment that Israel deserved, that the people deserved. And he did it so that this new covenant could be made with them. And not just with them, but with us as well. From the least unto the greatest. All of those who are in Christ are recipients of the covenant. Through his blood, all of the benefits of the new covenant can be freely ours. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and his focus is the gospel. His focus is the grace of God that's freely found through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The curse of the law, what they deserved from the first covenant, the old covenant. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He paid what we deserved. How? He was made the curse for us. And then verse 14 says that the blessing of Abraham, this is the promise that God made to Abraham that through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the new covenant. He's saying that it's through the blood of Christ that the old covenant is fulfilled and the new covenant is ours for the taking. That we can have the promise of the Spirit. And how does it all happen? Through faith. It's not through works. It's not by being good. It's not by keeping some kind of law, even one that you've made, even one that your church has. It's all about your repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ. And so let's apply this today before we take part in the Lord's Supper. If you know Jesus, if you're a child of God, you have received the redemption that is offered by the blood of Christ. By Christ sacrificing for you. By him being beaten for you, tortured for you. 
that all of the good things that we enjoy, all the blessings that we find in Christ, they came through his blood. They weren't just lavished freely on us without some kind of cost, but that Jesus had to die so that we could be his. That God is not just the the God, but he is our God, and we are his children. That we are forgiven of our sin and that God remembers it no more. That the Spirit lives within us and his law is written on our hearts. And if that is you today, then when you come to the Lord's Supper, we are called to remember. Remember the the cost. Remember his death. Remember the torture. Remember the pain. Think of what Christ has accomplished for you. We are called to give thanks. All of this, all of what I'm talking about, if if you understand it, if you're following along, understanding our hopelessness without Christ, this new covenant, how it's given to us in the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ, all of that should move us to thankfulness, to gratitude. It should move us to examine ourselves. Hey, am I living my life in light of that truth? Am I trying to share this truth with others? Am I trying to to be the holy, peculiar people that God has called me to be? We examine ourselves and we hope. What a glorious thing that none of these promises demand anything from me. When I think of all of the promises that I've broken in the past, then I don't want to make a promise and have my life depend on it. I really don't. I'm frail. I'm weak. If it depends on me, it fails. But every blessing that I already have and that I will have in Jesus Christ is all, it's all based on him, and it's finished. There's nothing else to be done. So if that is us today, let's remember, let's give thanks, let's examine, let's hope. Maybe we rejoice in Christ, and let's praise him. Praise him for what he's done. If that is you, let's do the things that this table calls us to do. And if you do not know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, If you're here today and you've never asked Christ to save you, you've never called upon him, you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in him, if you're not 100% sure that your sins are forgiven, and you still hope that maybe by being a good person or going to church or keeping some of God's laws or at least having the right motivations will get you into heaven, or maybe you're not sure that any of it's real. Maybe you're not convinced that this thing is all true. I want to tell you that that it is that God is real, that his promises are sure, and that believing that a judge doesn't exist doesn't make him go away. We all will stand before him someday. If you are depending on yourself today, please look to Israel and see how mankind always fails. Hey, look to your past and tell me that you've always kept the promises that you make. That you could go through the law of God and say you'll stand before God knowing that you've kept it someday. You won't. You know you won't. And so if you don't know Christ today, listen. There is a new covenant. There is a promise that God has made to his people. And it's freely offered, the covenant of grace. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven that you could know Christ as your Savior, that you could be his child and he could be your God, that he could put his spirit within you and write his law upon your hearts. This is a glorious truth.
but it doesn't just fall upon you magically. It's not just yours because you've been to church or even because you know these things to, to be true in your mind. The promise of Christ is yours when you repent of your sin and you put your faith in him to save you. And that's his invitation today. And even as this Lord's Supper, we take part in this, part of what we're doing today is we're declaring his death for sinners and that there's life found in him. Erwin Lutzer said, No one can experience the eternal favor of God if they bypass the cross. The cross is the hinge upon the door of which history swings. It is the hub that holds the spokes of God's purposes in grand unity. The Old Testament pointed toward it. The New Testament proclaims it. The cross is the heart of our message and the heart of our power to combat the encroaching darkness. No one can experience the eternal favor of God if they bypass the cross. When we're finished this morning, we're going to sing a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I just want to read that first verse to you. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. And he did it so that he could offer us the cup of redemption, the promise of grace for all those who repent and trust in him. And so we gather here today because this simple service points us to the blood of Christ that is spilt for us, his body broken for us. It points us to the promise of redemption and it ignites within us a desire to live a life a life of praise to the one who completely deserves it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truths that we read. Lord, this is a story that no man can make up. This is a story of human frailty, of weakness, of sinfulness, and yet of a God who still loves and pursues and works through our sinfulness to bring about a perfect plan of redemption. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that today we sit at the Lord's table, that we've been invited here by Christ, and that he's made our way possible through his blood. Lord, I pray that as we partake, that we would remember, that we would give thanks, that we would examine, that we would hope and rejoice and praise. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray that you'd work in their heart, help them to see the redemption that is only found in Jesus Christ. Pray it all in your name. Amen.